Hello and welcome to United's podcast and sermon archives. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at fergusunited.org or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and we hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. All right, we are in week two of our study um, entitled Exploring God's Word. So over the course of 12 weeks, our goal is to get an overview of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation, try to put it into context. Uh, In the review, that's not going to work. Yeah, it's it's hot, but it ain't going to work right now. Um, in, in review, in your notes there, uh, our goal or the objectives of this study are twofold. Number one, to grow in our knowledge of the Bible through just simple practical teaching. Um, and ultimately, number two, to grow in our relationship with Jesus through the application of the Word. So we talked a little bit about this last week, that we can know all about God and still fail to know God. And the example that was used is you can, you can talk to people who can rattle off all kind of statistics about maybe a, an athlete, and they can tell you their batting average, they can tell you how tall they are, how much they weigh, what color their eyes are, whether or not they like long walks on the beach, but they've never met the individual. They don't know that person. So our goal is twofold. We want to know about God, we want to know about the Word of God, but we also want to grow in our relationship with God. In Lesson 1, we did an overview of what we refer to as our Old Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. Anybody remember kind of an easy way to remember how many books are there? Right. New is three. Three letters. Testament is nine. There's 39 books. Actually, we should be saying old, not new. Old is three. (laughs) Well, there's a trick for that one too. When we get to the New Testament, we'll get there. Old is three, Testament is nine. So there's 39 books in the Old Testament. Uh, For the sake of our study, we broke that segment of 39 books into four categories that represent how God dealt with mankind at different time periods. So there's a period of innocence, a period of conscience. There is the time of the patriarchs. And there is the time referred to as the time of the law and the prophets. We established that the Bible was the inspired Word of God. Because that's an important question to answer. Is this just another book? Um, Or is this the, the Word of God? And so, if you missed out on all the finer points of proving that, go back and listen to the recording from last week. But we did establish that. We examine that the world was originally created by God and it did not look like what it does now. The environment that God created for Adam and Eve was a perfect environment. It was one in which they had access to the tree of life and there would have been no death. There would have been a lot less pain and sickness and disease. That entered into the world through the decision to sin. We discussed the fall of Adam and Eve We discussed the judgments that God pronounced. We concluded our first lesson, though, with a promise that was placed in the midst of the judgment. So God placed the judgment upon the serpent and upon the woman and upon the ground and upon the man. And in the midst of that, He said, but there's going to be a time when the seed of woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that was a promise to us looking all the way forward to the coming of Jesus. Our opportunity to apply God's Word last week was extracted from Eve's series of poor decisions. And I'm trying not to take too much time in review, but Eve made a a series of bad choices prior to ever sinning and actually disobeying God. And again, you could go back and listen to what those were, but there were three to four decisions that she made before she ever actually stepped across the line and disobeyed God that were poor choices. And our focal point was a chart that reminded us that we have the power to choose. We can choose to live for God. 
We ended our study with talking about the fact that it's often said you live for God one day at a time. And that could even be further simplified. If you're going to be effective, we live for God one decision at a time. Every choice that I have the opportunity to make, I can choose whether I'm going to do it my way, the world's way, the enemy's way, or if I'm going to do it God's way. That's a choice that no one can make for you. God gave you free will. He gave you the power to choose. So, chart one of lesson two. Our lesson today picks up on the heels of Adam and Eve being expelled from paradise. God's judgments were promissory. And again, if you have the fill in the blank, don't be distracted. If you miss something, there's an answer key at the the bottom of the last page. But His judgments were promissory. They were things that would come to pass. With the exception of them having to exit the garden and the relationship that they had with God immediately being affected, everything that God said is something that would take place. And so, as I pondered this and studied it out, I don't know how much different the, the first few days outside of the garden were for Adam and Eve. Um, the ground was, it was growing thistles and thorns, but there weren't any thistles and thorns yet. There were seeds of thistles and thorns. Eve, in Eve, was growing the seed of children. But she had not yet experienced the pains of the judgment. So they probably went about their life at a pretty normal pace. You know, what? what is this? is weird. This is strange. But we don't have the same relationship that we used to have with God. But everything else seems to be pretty normal. When in fact, the judgment that God had pronounced was well on its way. Many people are tempted to discredit the warnings of God concerning a life of sin because the effects are not immediate. Say, well, you know what? This, all this horrible stuff was supposed to happen, but you know, I started dabbling in this sin and, and things just seem to be just like they were before. Little do you know that seeds of God's judgment are beginning to grow. Yet just as Adam and Eve were to soon learn of God's words were true, so will every man and woman that chooses to live such a lifestyle. God's Word will come to pass. If He says that disobedience and sin is going to reap judgment, it will take place. Genesis 3 and 16 bears this out. Under the woman He said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrows and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and the desire shall be unto thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. That was what God said would happen. But it wasn't until we get to Genesis 4, 1 and 2, that we see it come to pass. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Can you imagine what that would have been like? We read past these things so quickly and they're just, you know, oh, Adam knew his wife and she bare a son. Wasn't that a joyous occasion? It's a freaky occasion now. And we know what to expect. I mean, Eve probably had a lot of questions for a little while. Because <laughs> it, was, it was new. It came on suddenly. It was something that just happened to take place. Adam and Eve became parents of two sons. Cain and Abel, the Bible provides us with the detail about these two brothers. It tells us that Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd, Cain was a farmer. Uh, Picking up in Genesis 3, verses 3 through 7, it says, And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground, brought of the ground, (laughs) an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? 
If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. The fact that Cain and Abel both brought an offering to the Lord at the same time allows us to see that there was some sort of direction that was provided. I don't know if this direction came from their parents, Adam and Eve, instructing them of the importance to offer unto the Lord, or if God Himself had provided this direction, but I don't think it's coincidence that both of these brothers just happened to decide at a certain appointed time, I'm going to bring an offering to the Lord. So there's, there's some sort of direction that's given there. And we see some things play out here. The Bible tells us God had respect to Abel and his offering. And had no respect for Cain and his offering. Now we have to pause here for a moment and ask the question, doesn't the Scripture tell us that God is not a respecter of persons? Anybody ever read that verse? God is no respecter of persons. I I didn't take the time to look it up. It's a New Testament Scripture. And it, it lets us know that God does not look down and see a wealthy man or a talented man and give preference to that individual. But this Scripture tells us that God does respect Abel and his offering. And He does not respect Cain or his offering. Now, it would be conflicting enough if it said that He just had respect for their offerings. But the Bible tells us also that He had respect to Abel. And He did not have respect to Cain. He had respect for Abel's offering and not for Cain's offering. God will not regard a man based on that man's merit or position in life. There's nothing I can do or achieve or accomplish to make God look down and say, you know what, Look, he's such a great guy. I just have so much respect for him. That, that's not how it operates. However, God consistently through Scripture regards those who make choices that He has promised to bless. God could have respect unto Abel and his offering because Abel placed himself in line with a promised blessing. As to where Cain took himself out from in line with a promised blessing, therefore disqualified himself from the same level of respect in God's eyes. I don't think, however, we should be so quick to judge the motives of Cain. Now, I've heard this preached a lot, and I've heard it taught. Cain knew better. He knew better than to bring the the fruit of the ground. He knew better than to bring produce and offer it to God. But as I read my Bible, I don't see anywhere where that instruction is given. I, I don't see that direction. And so we could speculate and assume that maybe he knew, but allow me to offer a different perspective. He willingly brought an offering to God. He was not forced to bring an offering to God. Cain, of his own accord, of his own desire, brought something to the Lord. What he brought was the fruit of his own labor. Remember, the Scripture told us Cain was a farmer. So the fact of the matter is, is it was very possible that he thought highly of what he was bringing to offer. After all, that was something that he had invested in. It was something that provided income and substance for his family. It was something that was valuable to him. So Cain was offering something that he believed was valuable. The problem is, however, it is not what God desired. It was not what God desired. Even though Cain thought it was special... Cain could have thought that it was great and it was a wonderful offering to bring. It was not what God was looking for. God did not adjust His expectations based on the motives and the values of Cain. That's important for us to catch. God didn't look down and say, oh, look at that. Cain, out of his heart, has brought something to me and it's something that he values. So so I'm going to alter what I desire to fit what Cain values. God did not do that. He did, however, provide um, guidance to Cain. He didn't say, Cain, you fool, what's your problem? Bring, hey, this ain't what I want. Get out of here. I never want to see you again. That'd be pretty harsh. Instead, 
It says that when he rejected Cain's offering, that Cain's countenance fell and he, he got angry. He got upset. And God began to talk with him and say, listen, what's the matter? There, there's really not that big of an issue here. Don't you know that if you would just bring what I've asked for, if you bring what I'm requiring, you also will be accepted. God is saying to Cain, Cain, I'm not going to alter what I consider acceptable to fit your parameter of values, but if, if you will just adjust your life in some minor ways and bring what I'm asking for, you also will be accepted. I'll have respect unto you and unto your offering. A proper sacrifice requires the shedding of blood. It requires the shedding of blood. Now we see this all the way back in the garden. Adam and Eve had sinned. There was disobedience. And they took, like Cain, from the fruit of the ground, a vegetable, a herb, and they made aprons for themselves from fig leaves. God, on the other hand, when He showed up, He had to slay an animal, and there was the shedding of blood, and they were properly clothed. We see this in Abel's offering that is accepted. There was the shedding of blood when he brought to the Lord a lamb and he offered that sacrificial lamb. All of these things point to Calvary. We'll get into in later lessons the sacrificial system that's set up. There is a, a sin-remitting power to the shedding of blood. Romans 6 and 4 says the wages of sin are death. Something has to die. And so there's the shedding of blood all the way to the point where Jesus steps on the scene and sheds His blood for the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9 and 22 says it like this, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. Despite the grace that God extends to Cain, he refuses to change his approach. God extends this opportunity and further direction and coaching to Cain, and yet Cain refuses to change his approach to come in line with what God says, and instead, he murders his brother. I find this baffling because Abel was not the problem. Abel did nothing to Cain. Abel was, in all respects, an innocent bystander in the situation. All he did is what was right. I would caution us from this story in Scripture that when we're not right with God and we feel that conviction to avoid the temptation of transposing our guilt and our frustrations on those who are right with God. Cain had no reason to murder Abel. We say, oh, Cain, what's your problem? But there are times that we're tempted to do the same thing. We feel guilt. We feel a little bit of conviction in our spirit. And rather than, than allowing that to conform us, we start to tear down the choices that other people have made to grow closer to God and, and, and break them down so that somehow if we can minimize their decisions, it'll make us feel better about ours. Cain murders Abel simply because his offering did not line up with what God accepted. It didn't help Cain. You know, it wasn't like, yes, Cain's out of the picture. Now God has to accept what I'm bringing. No, that, it didn't help Cain. In consequence to Cain's sin, God curses him and sends him away from his family. Genesis 4 and 26 takes us to the next phase here it says and to Seth to him also there was born a son and he called his name Enos then began men to call upon the name of the Lord so Seth is a, another son that's born to Adam and Eve after Abel was murdered and Cain was sent away and judged they had many other sons and daughters we read later about Adam and Eve but now here's Seth. He has children. And it's interesting, this verse, it says, Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. That kind of caught me off guard. 
So I, I began to research that and read it in some other translations. And what you'll find is that means at that point in time, at that point in human history, men began to call upon the name of the Lord like we would be familiar with in prayer and praise and worship and thanksgiving. And it leads to an interesting question which I'll just put out there today. I don't have the answer for because Scripture doesn't give it. But how, what form of communication did God and man have between the garden and this point in time? Because we know that in the garden... They, they physically were able to walk with God. They were in His presence. They could, they could talk to Him face to face. And we know that that ended in the garden, but yet there was, there was a level of communication. Cain was still talking to God on some level. And yet now we have a time that we're still in when men call upon the name of the Lord in prayer and thanksgiving. So that's, that's just something to think about. Maybe a question for the Lord when we get to heaven. One of the most interesting people in the Scripture as we pass through this phase of Genesis is a man by the name of Enoch. Genesis 5 and 24 tells us about the, the death of Enoch. Now if you read, I think, the, the two verses prior to that, that's all the context we have on Enoch. I think there's about three verses there that talk about this guy. But it says in Genesis 5 and 24... And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The guy didn't even see death. He, he walked with God, and then he just wasn't there anymore. Because God took him. Now, to elaborate on that a little bit, Hebrews chapter 11, which we'll spend some time in today, it's called, uh, by many people, the chapter of the heroes of faith. It talks about just one, one by one people of great faith. And this is what it says in Hebrews 11 and verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. That he pleased God. I see here an amazing example, a type and a shadow of the rapture of the church. Simply a, a taking away. Enoch was just there, and then he was gone. It says that he had a testimony. A testimony. What would people say about Enoch? When nobody could find Enoch anyway, there was no funeral, there, there was no procession that went on, nobody knew what happened. All they could say of Enoch, the testimony was simply, he pleased God. Let that be said of our life. When the day comes and the rapture of the church takes place, and if I can go any way I want to go, I want to go in the rapture. I mean, I'll go to heaven any way God sees fit. But I think the rapture is going to be pretty cool. Amen. And I want them to be looking around at the end of the day and saying, well, we don't know where they are, but we know they pleased God. Say, man, how, how do I qualify? How do I get myself to a place where, where I can go in the rapture? Well, they pleased God. They lived a life. They made, back to last week's lesson, they made a series of decisions, a series of choices that were that were pleasing to God, and then they were just not. Unfortunately, the virtues of Enoch were not common in his day. That takes us to Genesis 6, verses 5-8. through 8. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Then we get to verse 8, and it lets us know, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The heart of man, the imagination of man, the trajectory of man got to such a point that it says there was, there was nothing but evil continually. The thoughts that they would think were thoughts that were evil. They were displeasing to God. They were thoughts that were sinful. The actions that they would take were sinful actions. It was a sin-sick society. And God gets to the point where He says, I... I am sorry. I repent. Now we talk about that term when it faces us. 
It means when I'm going one way and I repent, I turn around and I go the other way. God said, I repent that I have even made mankind. I, I, I am grieved in my heart, the Scripture says. God is speaking and He says, in my heart, I, I regret even making mankind. He says, I'm going to destroy everything that I've created. That's a bad place to be in society. And luckily, God, as He surveys the world, He looks across the land, and there was a man by the name of Noah, and it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Picking up on the next chart, because of the grace of God, Noah was provided with a way of escaping the judgment that was to come. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Somebody give me a definition. What is grace? Receiving what you do not deserve. So we always get grace and mercy confused. Mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve. Grace is when I do get what I don't deserve. So Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it's not that Noah necessarily deserved because he was a, such a righteous man, but there must have been something in his life where he tried to live for God so that when God looked down, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God extends to him something, and it was a plan of salvation. It was a plan that would enable him and those that would listen to him the ability to escape the judgment that was to come. It was only accessed through obedient faith. Obedient faith. God's commands did not make sense to the world Noah lived in. Noah was to build a boat in a desert. That doesn't make sense. Noah preached righteousness and warned of the rain to come in a time when it had never rained. That didn't make sense. And so here's this crazy preacher standing on his tiptoes, screaming to the world around him to repent and to choose to live for God and to make sure that they get on the ark and there's judgment that's coming. There's going to be rain. There's going to be a flood. And the Scripture lets us know that they scoffed and they mocked and they laughed at Noah and they rejected Noah's message. As if... Well, first let's read uh, 2 Peter 2 and 5. Speaking of God, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Noah, he was a preacher of righteousness. As if God's plan was not strange enough, it was also extremely detailed. When God spoke to Noah, he did not say, Noah, build an ark, I'm going to send a flood. He said to Noah, Noah, you're going to build an ark. You're going to use gopher wood. It's going to be this long. It's going to be this wide. It's going to be this high. It's going to have this many doors. They're going to be in these locations. There's going to be this many floors on the ark. You're going to pitch the ark within. You're going to pitch the ark without. Noah, there's going to be this many windows. And here's where the windows are going to be. Noah, here's how many animals you're going to bring on the ark. How many animals did, God, did Noah bring on the ark? Or how many of each animal? Okay, it's a trick question. Two is the, the Sunday school answer. But in fact, when you read Scripture, just as long as we're passing by here, seven of every clean animal was boarded upon the ark, and two of every unclean animal. God was extremely detailed when He gave Noah a plan for salvation. Had Noah decided to disobey and or change up the plan of God, he and his family would have perished like the rest of disobedient humanity. God did not leave an open door of salvation before Noah. He did not say, Noah, you have found grace in my eyes and because of that, you can, you can approach salvation any way you would like to approach salvation because you found such grace in my eyes. He said, Noah, because you have found grace in my eyes, here is a plan of salvation that I am handing to you. And if you follow this plan, you will be spared from the judgment that is to come. In your notes, partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience 
is still disobedience. What if Noah would have built the ark out of gopher wood? He would have put the doors where he was supposed to. He would have put the windows where he was supposed to. He would have brought all the right animals on the ark. He would have put the pitch, which was like tar, tree sap. That's what made it waterproof. Maybe he put the pitch on the outside. And then he thought, you know what? I've been building this boat for decades. I'm tired. I've done enough. It looks very, very similar to what God has commanded me. And I'm done. The boat wouldn't have floated. It wouldn't have made it. Partial obedience is still disobedience. God's way is the only way. Noah's obedience was counted to him as righteousness. People say, oh, you're self-righteous sometimes when you start to maybe make decisions to live for God. No, I'm not self-righteous. There's nothing I can do in and of myself to make myself righteous. But I can be smart enough to obey what God has said was righteous. Genesis 7 and 1, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. When I said earlier, um, it was only access, the salvation was only access through obedient faith. We live in a time where many people have faith. There are a lot of people that believe what the Word of God says is true. Where we struggle as a people today is the obedient part. God, I know it's true. I put my faith in You. But what am I doing with that faith? How am I becoming obedient to the Word of God that's been given to me? I've got to pick up the pace or I'm not going to get done. Um, Hebrews 11 and 7, by faith, being warned, Noah being warned of God, of the things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared. Is that Scripture printed in your notes? Underline that word prepared. We're going to come back to that. Prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he commanded the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He condemned, not commanded. (laughs) Now, who saved Noah? God saved Noah, right? Did Noah save Noah? I could say yes and no. We know that it was God that saved Noah. Noah would not have had the, the wisdom or the insight to build a boat without God speaking to him. God was ultimately responsible for the salvation of Noah. However, it does tell us that Noah prepared an ark to the saving of his house. So Noah had a part to play in the salvation process. How foolish would it have been for Noah to stroll around town for the time period that he was supposed to be building an ark saying, man, I'm so grateful God has told me about the ark. I'm so excited. Thank you, Jesus, for the plan of the ark. Lord, you've been good to me and you've told me all about the ark. And, and he did nothing until the first day when the rain dropped hit him on top of the head. See, Noah had a part to play. Salvation is of the Lord, but our obedience to God's plan is our part. It's our part. There was only one way of escape offered. God's way was the only way. There came a day when God's offer to repent and become obedient expired. This story could have read differently had there been someone who would have heeded the words of Noah. Just his sons and his sons' wives were the only ones that would listen and get on board. Genesis seven fifteen and 16. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, and God commanded as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. God closes the door on the ark. And nobody else can get in. 
There came a, a moment in time when the opportunity to do right no longer existed. The rain began to fall. The fountains of the deep were broken up. The entire earth was flooded and all of humanity, with the exception of Noah, his sons, and their wives, were destroyed in judgment. I'm going to pass quickly through here because I've got to make up some time. Um, how long were they in the ark? A long time. Right, right. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. They stayed there a long time. And first of all, let's break it down. They were in the ark for about a week before the flood started. So God closes the door and then there's about a week before the rain and the fountains even begin. Okay, there's 40 days of rain, 40 days and 40 nights of rain. The ark was afloat for 110 days before it, it kind of beached itself on the top of Mount Arat. There was 40 days before Noah released a dove and a raven to find out if there was a place for them to land. They came back. Actually, the dove came back. doesn't tell us what happened to the raven. The dove came back. Seven days later, he sent it out again. Came back. Seven days again, he sent it out the last time. It did not come back. Seven more days before God told them to open the door. So they're in this ark for right around 218 days. That's a long time to be in a boat with a bunch of animals and your family (laughs) no doubt yet there was a promise again in the midst of judgment this is a a pretty extreme judgment that God has sent upon mankind Genesis 8 20 and 21 and the Lord smelled a sweet savor So the first thing Noah does when you're reading in in Genesis 8, when they step off the ark, the first thing that he does is he starts to take of some of those clean animals, of which they had seven, and he started to offer sacrifices unto the Lord. And so as the smoke of those sacrifices ascended, that's where we're picking up. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. God continues to speak to Noah uh, throughout Genesis 9. He reveals to them that animals would now be a source of food. He institutes human government and even uh, sets in place the parameters for capital punishment. He establishes a covenant with Noah and all generations that would follow. Genesis 9, 9-13 And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you, for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And we to this day have an amazing promise from God every time we see a rainbow in the sky. And I don't care what the perverted world we live in tries to use it for, the rainbow is a signal of a promise from God that there will not be another flood that covers the earth and kills everything that's living. Moving to chart 3. We understand that the rainbow lets us know the earth will never be destroyed 
by a flood again. However, Scripture is very plain that we will one day see a judgment in a different manner. 2 Peter 3, 6 and 7, whereby the world that was, that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. God has declared that judgment would come upon the ungodly. Though the agent He uses will not be water, it will be just as devastating for those who choose, or I'm sorry, for those who refuse to obey God. So, in this chart, we're going to ask the question, what, what was the world like leading up to the days of the flood? The Scripture tells us that people were just living life. That's what it was like. They were having weddings. They were having parties. They were going to work. There was extreme wickedness all around. And despite the message of Noah, the people behaved as though they were ignorant to the coming judgment. Though they had been told and warned and educated, they continued to make choices and live a life that communicated that they were ignorant to what was to come. Which leads us to a more important question. What will it be like in the days leading up to Jesus taking the church out of this world and releasing the next judgment? There will again be extreme wickedness. How do we know this? 2 Timothy 3, verses 1-4. through This know also, in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. It sounds a lot like the day that we're living in. We are living in a day of extreme wickedness. Why do I stand as a preacher of the Word of God and say I believe that the rapture of the church is soon? Because the, the climate, the spiritual climate that is described in Scripture as the last days is upon us. Everywhere you look, there is, there is wickedness. The thoughts, again, of man's heart are continually evil. We live in a society that allows organizations to exist that attempt to legalize pedophilia. We live in a sick sin-sick world and society. It also tells us that as in the days of Noah, it will simply be life as usual. Life as usual. Matthew 24, 37-44. Speaking about the end time and the coming of the next judgment. It says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of Noah were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. He said, he said you don't know the hour. You don't know the exact time that God's going to come back. He said, but doesn't it lend to reason that if, if the owner of a home knew 
a, a period of time in which the thief was going to show up, that he would prepare his home and make sure that he was ready to defend it. And God's saying, I'm not telling you the hour or the day. I'm not going to put a date on your calendar, but I'm going to describe for you the season, the climate of which time is going to look like. So how wise would it be to be prepared in this hour? In closing, in an application of today's lesson, I'm going to take you back to two verses, Genesis 6 and 8 and Hebrews 11 and 7. Genesis 6 and 8 is a game changer. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When you're reading those verses coming up to verse 8, it's bad. Like it's over. All of it is over. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In Hebrews 11 and 7, where you underline the word prepared, because of the grace that, that Noah had received, he was obedient. He prepared an ark for the saving of his house. What can you do today? What actions can you take? Number one, embrace grace. The flesh, the, the carnal mindset says, I'm gonna, I'll do that tomorrow. God, tell me about the ark tomorrow. Not yet. Life's pretty good. I, I'm enjoying where I'm at. I, I got too much going on. I'm just busy right now. Tell me about grace another day. No, we've got to stop in our tracks and say, God, you, you're going to do what? What? Fire? Judgment? It's on its way? Tell me more about this grace thing. I want to embrace grace. And when God delivers to me a message of salvation, I then have to prepare in faith. I prepare in faith. As I look around, most under the sound of my voice, but not all have been obedient to the message of grace. To that of being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? For the remission of sins. God is extending that grace. Here's what you can do. You've got to embrace that and then you've got to obey that. Then he goes on and he says, not only are you going to be baptized with water, but with fire from on high. You're going to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost evidenced by speaking in other tongues. You say, that doesn't make sense. That sounds about as foolish as building a boat in the desert. That sounds about as dumb as preaching about a flood and rain to people that have never seen it. I don't understand it, but I've got to embrace grace and I've got to obey it in faith. I've got to pursue it in faith. Accepting God's method of salvation took faith. I can only imagine the, the mindset of Noah the first time he convinced somebody to listen to him for a minute. Here's what I got to tell you. It's going to rain. It's going to what? It took faith. He had to believe God's Word when it didn't line up with the world in which he lived. It still takes faith today to accept God's message of salvation. Furthermore, building an ark was a task that took daily faithfulness. Here's a study for you. Consider how long it took Noah and his sons to build that ark. Week one, week two, week three, that, that's probably no problem. I mean, I just heard from God. There's judgment on the way. God, the, the Word is fresh. But how about like month six and month seven? I'm cutting down another tree. I'm sawing another board. My hands are covered in this tree sap that I've got to put on the inside and on the outside. I'm driving another nail and I'm waking up another day and I'm building this ark. How easy would it have been after a little bit of time went by to say, you know what, this, I'm just going to take a break. But no, building an ark was a task that took daily faithfulness. 
And both of those things, immediate obedience and daily faithfulness were required for the salvation of Noah and his family. So we can learn about the Word of God today. But more importantly, we have to apply the Word of God today. I have to make application of what's being taught. I've got to take that initial step of obedience. And if you've already taken that step of obedience, keep building that ark. Keep becoming more like God. Keep looking less like the world. It had to look crazier and crazier as time went on. There's this giant boat and there's no water around anywhere. But Noah knew something that the others refused to acknowledge. That was that the waters were coming. I realize that I I feel a little bit of a heavy tone at the conclusion of this service, but the fact of the matter is I'm a liar of a preacher if I don't plainly tell you that judgment is coming again. Scripture says it's fire. Scripture talks of brimstone. Scripture talks of famine. You have a Bible. Read the back. You'll see what I'm talking about. But there is a promise in Revelation 4 and in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, that the church, those who have the testimony, they pleased God, will not experience that, but they will escape the wrath to come. Let's stand. Let's pray. If you've never taken these steps, if you've never been filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, today is a good day to take that step of faith and seek after God. He will deliver on His promise. If you've never had your sins washed away in the waters of baptism, specifically in the name of Jesus, today's a good day. If you have, and you're weary and you're tired, maybe you've caught yourself taking a break on building for a while, talk to the Lord about it. Ask Him to remind you of the direction that you were given in the first place. Get back to building. Maybe like Cain, you've begun to offer some things that you value but they don't quite line up with what God has requested. Today is a good day to make some adjustments. Say, God, what is it that you're looking for? I'm willing. I'm willing today to make the application to to adjust what I think, how I feel, and what I'm going to do with what you expect. I want to be both obedient and faithful. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you'd like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online to fergusunited.org. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. That way you will be automatically notified of our new episodes. Thank you very much and we hope you have a great week. God bless you.